0: Gonna be a good series, I'll tell you that. And that last clip with the cowboy making that interception, it took us hours to find a good cowboy play. You understand? Add that in there. That's hilarious right there. Well, I am so glad that you are with us today uh, here in the room at our multi-sites. Also, those joining us on the stream and TV as we begin a brand new series called Get in the Game. We're trying to paint a picture of what the church is supposed to be all about. And, of course, you know that the church is not a building the church is the people. We are the bride of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. So we're going to try to paint a compelling picture of what it is to get in the game. Not just to attend church, but to be The church. So let me start off by telling you a story. Uh, Many of us, we've, we've gone to picnics, haven't we? Picnics that we look forward to, or more than likely, picnics that you endured. Your wife drug you out to that picnic. It's not uncommon to see somebody out picnicking. What's uncommon sometimes is the place where they decide to have the picnic. Max Lucado, in one of his books, writes about the story that happened in 1861. The people of Washington, D.C., thought it would be a good idea to have a picnic up on the side of a hill as they overlooked a battlefield with an actual battle. Taking place that's right friends. You heard me right. They're sitting there laying out their picnic blankets passing the fried chicken the potato salad and the coleslaw while they're watching soldiers from both sides shoot each other and cannons going off. There was a reporter there from the London Times. This is what he wrote the spectators were all excited and a lady with opera glasses was quite beside herself at the sound of the cannons. She said, and I quote, this is splendid. Oh my, isn't this first rate? Of course, soldiers are dying right in front of them. And then all of a sudden, what they thought was going to be a small little skirmish that wouldn't last very long, went out to an all-out battle. And now the soldiers are retreating up the hill where they're picnicking. Bullets are now flying by the picnicker's head. Dads grabbed their children. Husbands grabbed their wives. They ran back to their wagons and to their horses. Many of them were trampled underfoot as a result. Now you hear a story like that and you think, how stupid can people be? I think it's safe to say that's the last time in history that people went to a battle with a picnic basket. Or was it? Could it be? That you and I are guilty of the exact same thing. You say, what are you talking about, Todd? Well, the Bible says that we're in spiritual warfare. That there is an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And all we have to do is look around in our neighborhood, look around in our city, look around in our world today. And know that he's very effective. And what are we doing? We're picnicking. Hey man, can I have another piece of fried chicken? That'd be hey. Can I have that? That'd be great. Have some more coleslaw. Hey, I'll give you another scoop of coleslaw right there. It just doesn't appear to me that the church is taking the battle very seriously. Now, I know, friends, that we're fighting from the ultimate victory. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead, the victory has already been won. But we also know that there are battles, there are skirmishes that still need to be fought. But victory is inevitable, isn't it? Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Friends, this is going to happen, and no government can stop it. No person can stop it. No persecution can stop it. And God has invited his church, that's us, to be a part of it to kick down the very gates of hell. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture today in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is going to gather his disciples in one of the most intimidating places he could gather them to ask them two very important questions, the same questions that I'll have for you today. The Bible tells us that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. That means they took a 25-mile hike to go to this town. Now, one of the things you need to understand is the disciples are not excited about going to Caesarea Philippi. These were godless people. They had no desire to worship the one true God. All they cared about was sex, fulfilling their perversions, whatever they felt like was right, that's what they wanted to do. If Caesarea Philippi had a slogan, it would be this. Whatever happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. One of the other things that you need to know about Caesarea Philippi is this was where the temple of Pan was, a false god. People would come and they would worship the God of Pan. And there were temple prostitutes, male and female, that would do whatever your heart desired as you worshipped your false god, your false idol. This was a place of prostitution. This was a place of bestiality. This was a place of infant sacrifice. And I just imagine Jesus and his disciples sitting there on the grassy knoll right in front of that temple when he gets ready to ask them these questions. Now let's put that picture back up. If you see over to the left, you'll see that there's a cave. Do you see it? Do you know what's inside that cave? That's the gates of Hades. That's what the people called it. There was a spring inside that cave, and they tried to find where the bottom of that spring was, and they never could figure it out. Didn't matter how much anchors they put together, how much rope they put together, they never could find the bottom of that spring. So there was a belief that this is where Satan ascended and descended to do his business. There was a belief that this was the demons, where they would ascend and they would descend into the very gates of Hades. Can you imagine a more intimidating scene to ask these questions? Because Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Now, there were lots of options for the disciples on how they could answer that. They could have said, well, well some were saying that you are a, a, a glutton and a drunk. And, and that would be true. A lot of people were saying that. Jesus hung around with the sinners, right? And, and some Pharisees thought that Jesus partied a little bit too much. Of course, Jesus was there not to party, but to be a light in a dark place. So the disciples could have said, well, some people think that you're kind of a party animal. You know, they're not the Messiah that they anticipated. They could have gone that direction. They could have said, well, some people think you're cray-cray, Jesus, to be honest with you. They think you're a few fries short of a Happy Meal. They think your driveway doesn't make it all the way to the street, to be honest with you. Claims that you're making don't make any sense to these people. They could have gone both of those directions. Wisely, they didn't. This is what they said instead. When Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, some of you know who John the Baptist was. Some of you don't. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was the forerunner that made the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist was the kind of guy who would just tell you like it was. He was just a straight shooter. So when King Herod Antipas took his brother's wife Herodias as his own, John the Baptist said, what you did, king, was, was despicable. It was sinful and evil in the eyes of God. Well, guess what? Herodias didn't appreciate that. Well, they had John locked up in prison, and she wanted him to be killed. So she has her daughter dance for Herod Antipas. And at the end of the dance, he says, boy, that pleased me so much. I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. He's being braggadocious. She runs to her mom and says, what, do you, what should I ask him for? She says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So John the Baptist was dead, and there was a belief that the spirit of John the Baptist had entered into Jesus. So they said, some, of you say, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. There was an Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah, and people believed that someone would come in the the line of Elijah, and they would be the forerunner of the Messiah. So they say, listen, they don't believe you're the Messiah, but they believe you're the forerunner for the one who is to come. Still others, they think you're a prophet. Then Jesus asks the pivotal question. Okay, that's what everybody else says about me. But who do you say that I am? In front of the temple of Pan, in front of all this sin and debauchery, at the very gates of Hades, who do you say that I am? And I don't know how quickly they answered. I don't know if they kicked rocks for a little bit and kind of looked at each other like, oh, I don't know what to say. But I do know this. At some point, Peter stepped up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some of you think it is. It's not, it's a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one, the one they've been looking for, the Son of God who came to save the world. And then Jesus says this to Peter. I tell you that you're Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Do you understand the ramifications of what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Peter, we're not, we're not, we're not going to build my church in the safe confines of Jerusalem. We're doing it right here outside the gates of hell. My church will be triumphant. My church will go to places that nobody else goes. will care about people that nobody else cares about. My church will advance. My church will kick down the very gates of hell. You ever, you ever thought about a gate? What does a gate do? A gate protects their property, right? It's like the boundary. It says, this is our property. You can't go past here. A gate is a defensive mechanism, isn't it? You never see somebody say, let's go into battle and grab our gates. Let's go with our gates. No, that that doesn't happen, does it? You say, what's your point, Todd? The church is supposed to be on the offensive and not on the defensive. The church is supposed to be a group of people who gather together and learn the plays of what Jesus wants us to do and then we go and we forcefully advance the kingdom of God. The church is supposed to be a group of people who run rescue mission after rescue mission for those who find them on the other side of the gates of hell and say, for too long my mom's been over there, for too long my brother's been over there, for too long my friend or my co-worker's been over there, I must do something. I must kick in the very gates of hell. The church is supposed to be on the offense, not on the defense. Let me ask you a question. Do you know very many groups of people who call themselves the church who are on the offense? I think most of churches are just huddling. It's playoff time for the National Football League. Some of you are Dallas Cowboy football fans, so let me talk to you for just a second. If you would be so fortunate to be in Dallas today, you could have seen, or tomorrow, you could see your team play if you paid an exorbitant amount of money for a ticket, paid an exorbitant amount of money for a parking pass, right? And then you could go and you could watch your team play to the best of their ability. Lots of people are going to do that. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Let's say you spent all this money. Let's say it's thousands of dollars to go and see your team play. Finally, it's the moment the stadium is packed. The place is rocking. You're screaming. You're ever-loving. Head off. They flip the coin toss. And you win the toss, and you decide that you will receive the ball. You will take the ball to begin the game. So they kick the ball out of the end zone. You will now take the ball at the 25-yard line, and your offense runs out onto the field. And this is the moment you've been waiting for. You can't wait for Dak Prescott, your QB, to get it done. Well, they get in the huddle, and the clock is counting down because you only have so much time to run the play. And they get called for delay a game because they don't get to the line of scrimmage in time. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Oh, Okay, well, they must have had a miscue. Five-yard penalty. Okay, that's okay. We can overcome that. And so you watch them huddle again. And the clock ticks down and the ref throws the flag. Another five yards. And you're like, what's wrong with my team? There's not a single person that's going to be at the Dallas Cowboy football stand that's going to say, oh, man, I love my team. I love it when they huddle. Oh, man, that's the best-looking huddle I've ever seen right there. Did you see that huddle they just did? I think that was almost a perfect circle. That's what that was. Did you see them holding hands in that huddle? Oh, that's my team huddling like that. Yeah. Nobody's going to be saying that. They're going to be screaming, run a play. Because you didn't come to see your team huddle. Could it be that Jesus is screaming at us today? We come together in this place and we worship our Lord and Savior. And oh, we have a good huddle. Look at that huddle right there. woo hoo hoo Man, the lights, the music, the videos, and that good-looking preacher. Oh, honey, hush. We got ourselves a Good huddle. And I just wonder if Jesus looks down at us and says, you know, I didn't die on the cross and rise again from the dead just so you would talk about what you need to do, but you never get around to actually leaving this place and actually doing it. So here's my question. Are we huddling around here or are we running a play? 30% of us, Give money to this church. That's it. That's it. And I've told you that before in hopes that it would spur us on to think about what we could accomplish, what we could do. And I can't seem to get the 70% to get on board. Do you know how frustrating that is? When you look at your team and only 30% of your team wants to run the play, what do you think is going to happen to the QB? I'm going to get sacked. That's what's going to happen to me. What could we do what could we accomplish but no no, no, no. 70% of us are more concerned about our kingdom than we are the kingdom of God 30% serve I've told you this stuff before and I think every time I always have this hope that every time I share these statistics that that 70% would say that's ridiculous because what could we accomplish if everybody did something but I can't seem to get people off-center I can't seem to get them to get to the line of scrimmage and run the play that's needed to be run. And here's what's interesting. Last week when we showed the statistics of what we did last year, we all applauded it. But most of us didn't have any peace in it. You're in the stands. You're cheering us on. But what about the joy of getting in the game? Let me give you another one. This one really concerns me. We have campuses all over New Mexico and in Belize. And we've got campuses that run four, five, six, seven hundred people. And they can show up on a weekend. And when the dust has settled and we've run our little huddle, and we see how many new people came to that particular campus, they'll have a net gain of zero new people coming that weekend. And we've got to ask ourselves a question: how is it possible that 500 people like this service could gather together week after week after week and not have a single guest on the register? How is it possible? that that many people could have it so far off their radar or they have insulated them so far away from a lost and dying world that they don't even know anybody that they would invite to come to church. How is it possible that we can sit by these empty seats that we have here today and be okay with it? I need you to be the church. I need you to move from attending the church to being the church. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is why so many of you are so empty. And this is why so many of us feel unfulfilled. You think that church is all about this one hour of obligation and that's it. No, you are the church. You are the church and you have gifts and talents and abilities and resources that you're to leverage for the things of God and for the kingdom of God to attack the very gates of hell itself. I'm trying everything I can to spur you on to run a play. Now, some of you are going to be sitting here, and some of you are going to be watching from home and Say, oh, man, you're right, Todd. Everything you're saying is right. It's convicting, but you're right. i got to do more than I'm doing. This is ridiculous. God's blessed me so much. I'm supposed to be a blessing to other people. What plays should we be running? Well, that's what this whole series is going to be about. I'm hoping it's going to spur us on to see greater things than ever before. Don't you want to be a part of a move of God? Man, I so much want to be a part of a move of God that it's so great and so beautiful that only He gets the credit for it. Let me tell you the first play that we're supposed to run. We believe that God is intimately concerned about each individual lost person and therefore reaching them is the priority of our church. The church exists to reach one more person for Jesus because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and people really are going to one place or the other. And where do we learn that from? We learn that from the very mouth of Jesus. He talks about hell over and over and over again and we're supposed to set up a rescue mission to reach these people. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus tells about two people who died on the same day? True story. There was a rich man who died who didn't have a relationship with God, wanted nothing to do with him. He finds himself in the fires of hell. And then there was another guy, a poor beggar who loved God. He finds himself at the bosom of Abraham. Well, the rich guy is in agony in the fire, or how the story goes that Jesus tells. And he cries out to Abraham and to Lazarus to do something about the plight of his brothers. Look at what he says. I beg you, Father. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Do you notice the passion in his voice? Someone has to tell my brothers, I don't want them to end up here. Hell is not a place where the beer runs free and the women are wild. It's a place of torment. It's a place of isolation and people who reject Jesus Christ. That's where they're going to go. But you know something. I know something. We know the good news that God is for us and not against us. That he sent his son to die for us. That he rose again from the dead and that he wants to have a relationship with us. We have the best news possible. Your sin can be forgiven. God wants to walk with you and talk with you and do life together with you. He wants to prepare a place for you in heaven. It's what Jesus was about, wasn't it? He's on the cross, dying for the sins of all mankind, thief to the left, thief to the right. Both of them are cursing Jesus. Finally, one of the thieves looks at Jesus and realizes, oh my goodness, this is the Son of God. How do we know he believed that? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a tremendous statement of faith, because what kingdom is Jesus going into? There is no kingdom. He's dying, but he believes Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even on his deathbed, he wants to reach one more person for him. You know what's sad? Is that less than 10% of our church talks about Jesus to anybody. Less than 10% of our church on a weekly basis brings anybody with them to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And I think maybe the reason that is is because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. I mean, if someone, if you had a spiritual conversation with someone and they ask you, how would I give my life to Christ, would you be able to give them the goods? I put together a four-week class on how to share your faith, how to start up spiritual conversations. And on the app today, if you'll open up the Sagebrush app and you'll scroll one time over on the banner, you'll see this thing called Core Classes. You can click on that and you can register and you can learn how to share your faith. You can learn how to bring up spiritual conversations. Aren't you tired of that friend, that family member, that coworker not understanding the amazing grace of God? Aren't you tired of sitting there one conversation after another after another and never talking about the things that really matter, the things that really count? That person's going to go to hell unless we set up a rescue mission for them. So I'm asking you to sign up for that class. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad somebody told you about Jesus? Man, I'm so glad that somebody cared enough about me and risked to share Jesus with me. The Bible says in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And we know that there's going to be mansions in heaven. And so God, Jesus is making all these mansions. I don't know about you. I want to keep Jesus busy. I don't want Jesus up in heaven going, well, nobody's coming up here, nobody knew at least. I guess we're good to go right here. Jesus said this one day. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. People are more open to the things of God than they've ever been. Why is that? Because our world's more jacked up than it's ever been. You don't think people are uncertain? You don't think people are scared and afraid? They need hope. And the only one that can satisfy the emptiness inside of them, the only one that they can have hope in is Jesus Christ. Someone has to speak up. Someone has to talk to them. Oh, friends, the harvest is plentiful. But there's just not very many of us that are doing the work. And why is that? Because somewhere along the way, we've missed out on the mission of the church. It was a few years ago. I was out and about, and uh, this nice lady was talking to me, having a conversation, trying to sell me something. And she said, I recognize you. I said, you do? She said, yeah, I do. She said, you're Todd Cook. You're the pastor of Sagebrush. I said, yes, I am. I said, do you go to our church? She said, no. I said, oh, that's too bad. I said, have you ever been to our church? She said, I've been one time. I said, you've been one time? When did you go? She said, I came on Christmas Eve. Place was packed. Traffic was horrible. I said, why didn't you come back? She said, the place was packed. The traffic was horrible. I said, well, I'm just curious. What kind of church are you looking for? She said, well, I'm church shopping right now. You want to take a preacher off? Just say church shopping, all right? (laughs) I'm church shopping right now. And I'm looking for a small church that meets my needs. Haven't found one yet. So, I said, I hope you find that small church that meets all your needs. And then I said this, and I hope that when you get there, that you pray that God doesn't bring a single person to come to that church after you. Because if they do, the parking lot's gonna get crowded and it's gonna be hard to find to see. I said, let's take it just a step further. I want you to pray that your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister, your coworker, your friend dies and goes to hell. But you're comfortable in your small church. Because if you invite them, church is going to get big. There's going to be traffic issues. going to be hard to find a seat. Now, she looked at me like you're looking at me right now, too. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe I hadn't said it before. Call it out for what it is. It's narcissism. The church doesn't exist to meet my needs. The church isn't about what I want, my preferences. The church is about kicking down the very gates of hell. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus put it this way. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we're supposed to go, right? Because the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. And then he tells us to pray. And to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. That word send out, that phrase send out means to eject. To eject us out to places that nobody else will go. To care about people nobody else cares about. To actually be the hands and feet of Jesus. So what are you going to do with this one? Convicting, isn't it? I got to preach this five times. I so much want to. QB, a church that runs a play. And not just a few of us, but man, wouldn't it be beautiful? It'd be so awe-inspiring to see us all get in the game. What difference could we make? We might be able to kick down the very gates of hell. We might be able to leave our piece of the world in better shape than the way we found it. Well, you got to understand something about me. As long as there's breath in my body, that's what I'm going to spur us on to do. And if you've been around this place for a very long, you know I'm going to spur you on. I'm going to keep bugging you and keep bugging you and keep bugging you and keep bugging you. You have stumbled upon a church that wants to run offense. My goodness, if that means we start more campuses, then by golly, we'll start them. If that means that we send more money overseas to put more facilities of churches into the hands of those people so they can reach one more for Jesus Christ, we will give sacrificially to make sure that happens. We are the kind of people that will bake the cookies and walk across the street and befriend the neighbor in hopes that one day when the Holy Spirit gives us opportunity, we could invite that person to come to church and they would taste and see that the Lord is good. We are a group of people who are going to, to kick down the gates of hell. At least 30% of us. Are you ready to get in the game? Open up that sagebrush app, friends. Hit that decision tab. Give your life to Christ. He's the only one that's going to satisfy you. Get baptized. Be obedient to what he wants you to do. The obedient life is the best life. Get in the game. We don't have a single ministry on any of our campuses that has a waiting list for people to serve. Do you know why? Because 30% of the people are doing 100% of the work. Could you at least go home and make a list of five people that you know that don't have a relationship with Jesus? And would you just commit to the Lord that you would pray for them every single day and that you would ask God to give you opportunities to have spiritual conversations with them? Would you at least... Go to that class and learn what to say and how to say it so that when that moment, that beautiful moment comes and they say, how can I give my life to Jesus? You would be able to share the good news. Man, let's kick down the gates of hell. Let's make Satan sweat. You know, my dream for all of us is, is that when you get up out of bed in the morning, Satan starts sweating and goes, oh, crud, so-and-so's up. Let's fear God. Let's advance. Let's be a part of a move of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what could this group of people be? And what could we accomplish? Far greater than anything we've ever dreamed or imagined. And that's what you said you would do. You're just looking for a group of people who will surrender all that they are to you. Who will stop making excuses. They're too busy for this, they're too busy for that, or the stuff's too tight to give, or all all the junk we come up with. I don't want to be a part of a church that's ever satisfied. I want to set up a mission outside the very gates of hell. I want to take back ground that's been too far lost. Lord, spur within us what that next step is for us. God, may we want to be the church and never be satisfied with just showing up to one. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.